0: It doesn't take a genius uh, to observe, obviously, that uh, we differ from each other in a variety of ways. There are the uh, obvious differences. There's uh, gender, age, uh, height, weight, race, hairstyles, or lack of. Um, There's uh, our clothing and accessory uh, preferences, and, you know, these are just the areas that we can tend to take for granted and see readily, but, you know, there are other things that take a little bit more time to discern, and that's personalities and temperaments and likes and dislikes and things of that nature. And uh, so it should come as no surprise that we see things differently. And I saw a sign not too long ago that I thought I'd share with you that kind of illustrates this truth about how different we all are. The sign read, Welcome to the Psychiatric Hotline. It goes on to say this, If you are obsessive-compulsive, please press 1 repeatedly. <laughs> if you are codependent, please ask someone to press 2 if you have multiple personalities, press three, four, five, and six. So if you are paranoid delusional, we know who you are and what you want. Just stay on the line so we can trace the call. It says if you are schizophrenic, listen carefully. A little voice will tell you which number to press. And it says if you are manic depressive, it doesn't matter which number you press, no one will answer. I like that. All of us are different, you know, and uh, we all have our quirks. We all have our unique ways of looking at things and doing things. And that makes us vulnerable for what has been happening in our culture. And that is that there's this obsessive desire on our parts to become successful at whatever it is that we want to do. And uh, you can go into bookstores and you'll see books that range from how to dress for success how to invest for success, how to do everything for success. And, you know, we we live in this success-oriented culture where, you know, everything revolves around being successful. And it's interesting because once we go through the books, then we can graduate to the more expensive things where we can actually go to seminars that will teach us how to be more successful. We can buy tapes and we can fill our heads filled with information that will help us to become more successful and to find that winning strategy that we're looking for in whatever area of life it is that, you know, we would be pursuing. And so as we look at all this, the irony of all that is, is that, you know what, there's never enough success in anybody's life to make one feel completely successful. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it, you know, instead of fulfillment, we experience that bloated sensation of being full of ourselves, you know our dreams, our goals, our plans, our projects, our accomplishments, you know, all of these things. And we, we eat this all up, and before we know it, we're just bloated and we're filled. But you know what the problem is, is that we end up empty because of it. We're full for a while, but there's something still missing and lacking and empty in our life. And we need to recognize and understand as we go through it. I like what the Executive Digest says. It says, the trouble with success is that the formula is the same as the one for a nervous breakdown. Isn't that fascinating? You know, the formulas in the world that we live in usually are the same formulas that promise success that, that end up delivering exactly the opposite. And I'll give you an illustration of that. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we'll take a look at a man who was looking for success in all the ways that our world promotes success. You know, and really what we're looking for, and we don't even realize it, is we're looking for something deeper than what this world has to offer in terms of what they define to be successful. And as we look at this, here's a man who was successful as far as the world is concerned and had everything the world had to offer and said, hey, if you do these things, then you'll have success. And he found exactly the opposite in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. His name is Solomon. And we know from history that whether you believe in the Bible or not, whether you believe in God or not, the reality of it is, you can ask any human being who Solomon was, and most people will respond and say, Solomon was one of the wisest men who ever walked the face of the earth. But what's fascinating about it is, as wise as he is, no one listens to the counsel that he gave. And uh, I always think that's kind of ironic, isn't it? You know, oh yeah, Solomon, the wisest man I've ever lived. Boy, did you ever listen to anything he said? Or you ever study anything he said? Or you ever apply anything he said? Well, no, but we just know he was truly a wise man. Okay, which makes you an idiot. But you might not want to share that. You know, it just depends. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon's pursuit of success led him down these roads and see if you can't um, identify with the path that he chose and the direction that he went. And he said this, I said to myself, Come now and I'll test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself and behold it too with futility. How many times have you heard in the world that we live in that you know the road to success is one where you just please yourself? Just go please yourself. Hey, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, that's not a new philosophy, but it's one that's, that's taught on a regular basis today that you really need to enjoy life. If you, are, you know, if you find pleasure in life, then you're successful. But Solomon said, you know what I found it to be? It was futility, it was vanity. The word in Hebrew means it was like a soap bubble. It promised one thing and didn't deliver what it promises. You ever little children that ran around and chased soap bubbles and they grab them? It's pretty. The sun hits them. It looks like it's something that will be attractive. They go to grab it. When they get it, it bursts all over them. And they usually get soap in their eyes or on their hair somewhere else. It's kind of like that is the, the, the path that we're being told to go down. And when you get to the end of it, you'll feel successful. But Solomon says, when you get to the end of that road, you're going to feel empty. It's not going to deliver what it promises to deliver. It says, I said of laughter, it too is madness. Of pleasure, what does it accomplish? You know, what's the bottom line of all this? Later, Solomon says that, you know what? He goes, the the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. He's saying there's more lessons that you can learn when you go to a funeral than there ever will be anywhere that you go in life where people are just having a great time. There's nothing that can be learned from that. But the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning as the world mourns the death of those who it promotes before it. All of a sudden, people begin to s- sit and think, hey, you know what? I'm going to die one day. I need to learn what this is all about. I need to know what's after death. I need to n- understand what life is all about. Is there a God? Isn't there a God? If he's, if he's there, how can I get to know him? What's his plan and purpose in my life? How can I be sure that the moment that I die, that I could be in heaven if there is such a place? Or if there is such a place as hell, how can I avoid going there? That mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. Solomon says, but you know what? Of pleasure and laughter, man, it's just a waste of time says i explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely how to take hold of folly until i could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives oh god if we can just teach people oh lord to teach people that there's so much lying involved when it comes to hey if you just want to be satisfied in life and if you want to have success in life then it all boils around you know the good life hey weekends are made for Michelob. you can't really even celebrate anything without a heineken You know, that's what special occasions, that's what it's all about. You know, hey, drinking and drugs, and if we could teach our kids and even teach ourselves that there's nothing but trouble that comes down that path, how foolish we are. And Solomon said, I did all that, man. I went and partied. I had all the, I I could do anything I want to do. I had the parties and I had the wine and I had all this stuff. And you know what? It ended up leading to nothing but trouble in my life. It was empty. It was vanity. And that's for the people who can walk away from it without it destroying their lives or becoming alcoholics or becoming drug addicts and destroy their family and their homes and their jobs and their careers. It's a lie from the pit of hell. There's nothing good that takes place down that road. We need to recognize and understand it. You're not going to be satisfied when you go down there. You're not going to find success down the end of that road. You're going to find nothing but turmoil and trouble. He says, so I enlarge my works. Okay, I'm not going to destroy myself, but I'm going to achieve great things. I enlarge my works and I build houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. Oh man, if I could just build a big custom house, I'll be successful. If I can just build this big project and my name can be on it somewhere, I'll be a success because when people drive by it, they'll see my name. If I can build a business that somehow or another can have my name in bright lights and all my relatives can come out from back east and we can drive down the street and we can point to that building and they can say, man, you're a success. Wow. He said, I did all that. You can't even come close to what I did. And you know what I find at the end of all of it? It was empty. It didn't do what it promised to do. It didn't deliver. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I'll be successful, we say in Southern California, if I could just put a swimming pool in my backyard. About male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Male and female slaves. You know, I had people who worked for me, who responded to me. When I said jump, they jumped. When I say jump, they say, How oh, high, sir? And I'm successful because that's what the world promotes. So I had all that. I didn't feel any success. I was empty because of all of it. Oh, but the answer to everything in our culture is the next one. If I could just have a little bit more money. If I had more money, I'd be a success. People would look up to me. They'd respond to me. I could buy nice things, do nice things. I collected for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of many men, many concubines. The pleasures of men, concubines. Hey, you know, if I just had more money... And if I could just do what I want to do when I want to do it, and if I can go to every ball game that there was and had season tickets, and I can get one of those fancy $165,000 a year box seat tickets of big club boxes behind home plate, man, you know, and I can invite people to come, and they can come, and they can sit with me, and they can say, man, you're successful. If I can have any woman that I want or any guy that I want, and I can have sex whenever I want, oh, man, I'm going to be successful. And at the end of all of that are sexually transmitted diseases. At the end of all that is AIDS. At the end of all that is emotional distress and all the baggage that goes along with it. And we sit there and go, man, I thought I'd be successful. But man, you know what? I got a problem. I became great. If I was famous and everybody knew me, I'd be successful. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them, and I didn't withhold from my heart from any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of the labor and this is my reward and I considered all my activities which the hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold all of it was vanity and all of it was striving after the wind and there was no profit in any of it wow for a man that accomplished so much he ended up with so little but then he goes to this conclusion and everything starts to change the, turns, the whole, the whole tide turns in verse 24 of chapter 2 so what did I learn from all of this? What I learned from it was very simple. There's nothing, for a man than to, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and tell himself that his labor is good. And this I have seen that is from the hand of God. He says, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Who can have success in life without God being in the formula? Who can have success and fulfillment and peace and contentment and satisfaction if they don't come to a right relationship with the God who made them? What I found is that contentment and peace and satisfaction is a gift from God to those who rightly it to him and walk in obedience daily with him. God has a formula for success that's so far different than the world's formulas. All the books and all the, the seminars and all the cassettes and all the winning strategies, you're not going to find any of them as far as God is concerned because that chapter in and of itself, yet alone what we're going to discuss in a minute, that chapter destroys every one of them, just blows them all up shoots them all down, blows them to smithereens and says, if you think that's going to bring success, you're crazy because the success that you're looking for is only found in a right relationship with the God who made you. And that relationship's entered into when you discover that, you know what, I need you, God. I can't do this on my own. I've achieved everything that I set out to achieve and what I found is at the end of all of it, I've still got this hole in my heart that something's missing and it's you. And one of the fascinating things in our work with professional athletes is that they got to discover what the rest of us are still striving to try to achieve. They achieved it all in a short period of time. They had every goal they'd ever set out to accomplish, they, they accomplished it. And they had the money, and they had the power, and they had the fame, and they had the position, and they enjoyed all the pleasures. And they're 22 and 23 and 24 and 25 years old. And they're saying, you know what? There's something still missing in my life. And the world looks at them and says, man, if I had what you had, what in the world are you doing in a hotel smacking, smoking crack cocaine? What's wrong with you? Are you crazy? If I had your job, and your money, and your position, and your fame, and your popularity, and I accomplished what you accomplished, I wouldn't be sitting at some hotel, smoking crack cocaine. See, but what you don't know, that they know, is because they've accomplished what you think will bring success and satisfaction in your life, and they've done it, and there's still something missing. See, so you're still trying to pursue it. And if you had the same things they had, let me tell you something you'd have the same emptiness that they have. And the reason for it's simple, because only God himself can fill that void in our life. He's created us with a desire to know him whom he has created. He created man to have fellowship with him, to spend time with him, to be with him. And we've separated ourselves because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only remedy to that sin is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For those who receive Him, He gives us the right to become children of God, children of God, to enter into a relationship with God that now we can call God our Father. You see how simple that it is and yet it is so, so much in opposition to the world we live in that teaches us that you can find success by doing it on your own. And God says you will never don the gates of heaven until you bow yourself and ask for forgiveness and believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved but the seminars and the tapes and the cassettes and all the how-to, how to be successful. Let me tell you something. There's only one thing that we're all looking for, and that's this, how to be successful in the eyes of God. Turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 5, where we're going to find in this short little passage that we're dealing with that there is hope that we're actually going to find that goes beyond emptiness, a hope beyond this emptiness. And in this particular passage, we're given three, basically the three A's are God's plan for success, and it's very simple, and I'll guarantee you, you haven't heard it anywhere else. You will not read about this in any book that you buy in a secular bookstore. You will not hear about this in any seminar that you see on an infomercial. You will not hear this you know, taught anywhere in the world that we live. I'll guarantee you that. And when you hear it and see it, you'll understand why in a minute. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we read in verses 5 through 7, God's plan for success and where we will find hope that goes beyond this emptiness that we have. You younger men, likewise... Be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. I love this passage as we look at it because what we're going to find are three simple steps as far as God is concerned, God's plan for success, and basically an easy way to understand it or a way to remember it would be this. This is the three A's of of God's plan for success. And if you look at the first one, he has to do in the the very first verse that we saw, and that has to do with authority. God's plan for success has to do with authority. Notice what he says, you young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older, to be submissive. We've heard this theme as we've gone throughout the book of First Peter, but what's fascinating about it is, is that it helps to, to identify God's plan for success. It says, note the command that you, in the same way, be submissive. It's a command, and it carries with it the idea of respecting authority. So I'm sure as Peter reflected back on his life, he was reminded of those brash, impulsive moments when he thought that he knew better as such times as when Jesus said, hey, I just want to let you guys know that I'm going to be delivered up and I'm going to be crucified and, uh, you know, it's all part of the plan of God. And Peter said, wait a minute. yeah, That's not going to happen. You're not going to do that. I'll make sure that that doesn't happen. See, Peter had an idea that his idea was better than the one who was an authority in his life, which was God himself. Peter said, oh, no, I got a better plan. I got a better idea. I'm not going to let that happen. You know, and in fact, Jesus at that time delivered his, his strongest and harshest rebuke to Peter and he said, you know what? Get behind me, Satan. Well, it doesn't get much stronger than that. And I think even Peter caught on to that one as he was caught off guard and went, well, wait a minute. Well, what, I, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, tried to teach Peter and the rest of his disciples that, it wasn't, that he was not here for his will to be done, but for God's will to be done. God, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he was giving us an example of how we were to respect authority. And as we respect authority, we will find success in the eyes of God. And as we look at this, it's interesting to see that, you know what, it says to be subject or in the same way be submissive. It's in the present tense carrying the idea of keep on being subject to or keep on being submissive to authority. Keep on doing what you're doing. It's right before God. You'll have success before God. God honors those who respect authority, and and he's saying it becomes a lifestyle. So as I ask myself the question, Chuck, do you want to be successful in your walk with God? Do you want to be successful according to God's definition? Then the Bible says that I am to respect authority. I'm to listen to the counsel of my elders. Now listen to me. Just because someone's older than you, doesn't make them an elder to you and just because somebody is an elder by title in a church doesn't make them necessarily an elder either because what the definition that we have here is even though it's in the context of what we talked about last time an elder still has to be one who meets the qualifications of a godly man as far as God is concerned See, a lot of times, and we'll talk about this as in the context of where we're going through, many churches end up with people in a spiritual leadership position because they've been voted there or they have a lot of contacts and people like them. And so it becomes a process that we go through in our secular culture where we elevate people into a position of leadership because of who they know or how much money they've given or you know they're a good business leader or a good secular leader, so therefore we think they'll be a good spiritual leader. Understand what I'm saying here. Now, that could be the case, but what God is saying is this, we should be subject or respect authority in our life as they reflect those godly characteristics that we've already talked about in the first four verses of chapter 5. And so when you look back to that, say, hey, you know what, what should be, what should be the characteristics of a godly leader? Well, a godly leader is going to be one who what? Who exercises oversight, not under compulsion isn't forced to do it, but is called by God to do it, put in a position of leadership to do it, and we recognize that and we say, hey, God has put this person in that position, therefore I'm going to respect that person's authority. As they reflect the godly character that they demonstrate as found in First Peter, I mean in First Timothy and in Titus and the qualifications that we see there. Then as we go through that we also recognize that, you know, we're to follow their example. That leaders are to lead, they're to be out front. Leaders don't push people into service leaders don't sit behind a desk somewhere and say this is something that we need to do so now let's push people to do it leaders are saying hey I believe in this so much that I'd like people to do it and the only way I'm going to get them to follow me is that we're going to go ahead and do it ourselves and we're going to be out in the front man I mean you know when King David got in trouble with Bathsheba was that he was home hanging out when he should have been out on the battlefield leading his troops the reason the door opened for temptation was that he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do which was what? as a leader, lead what are you doing hanging out? Well, he had the the privilege of saying, I'm not going to this battle because of the position that he was in. But never forget this, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if if David was not in, in a submission to the authority of God in his life, it opened the door for him to get into the trouble that he got into. We need to understand, you know, leaders lead. So get out in front and lead. And as we look at all this, we see that it's not from selfishness. It's not so I can get a pat on my back, but I'm doing it to serve other people. See, so as we look at all this, be submissive to those who are older or actually that, that are elders, which has to do with the fact that, you know what, we need to listen to people who are older than us, and I believe that it's something that we've lost a tremendous amount in our culture. There are other cultures in the world who older people carry with them tremendous amount of weight. If an older person, a grandparent or, or a mother or a dad tell their children something, you know, it's just looked at and say, hey, you know what, we're going to go ahead and listen to you. Why? Because they've got such good judgment. I like the story that I heard about a guy, he went to a guy that had this great judgment. This guy had great judgment. And they went up to him for counsel all the time and said, man, I want to ask you something. How how'd you get such good judgment? And the guy said, well, you know what? Basically, you know, I got it from experience. And the kid's like, man, how do you get experience? He said, from bad judgment. <laughs> Isn't that true? That's like, hey, you know what? Sometimes we got great judgment because we have experience and the experiences that we had were because we used bad judgment. And so, you know what? Trust us when we say this as we all get a little older and you may be younger here and even I'm younger than, <laughs> than, than, than a few of you. But there's, you know, there's something to learn from everybody. You know, and the whole idea of respecting authority is one that we need to recognize and understand. And, and listen to this, you know, because God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Let me give you the best illustration that I found in Scripture to demonstrate what God's trying to say. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let me give you an example because a lot of times, you know, you tell people, well, respect authority, listen to your elders, uh, listen to their counsel, seek their counsel, follow their example. Oh, and by the way, the other reason that leaders are to lead is because more things are caught than taught. Don't ever forget this. As a parent, as a grandparent, as a teacher, as a coach, as whatever you are, or whatever leadership position that you're in, more truths are caught rather than taught. And what I mean by that is is that our lives are living, breathing, walking examples of everything we're trying to teach other people. So if you want to teach something of value, then live it out beforehand so that you can actually know what you're talking about and they'll actually believe what you're saying. I remember when I was growing up and I had an uncle that would, you know, my mom would go to him and say, you know, you really need to tell because he was close to me. He said, you know, you really need to go tell him, you know, he shouldn't be drinking, he shouldn't be doing stuff like that. And so my uncle would sit me down with a 16 ounce bud in one hand and a, and a cigarette in the other hand. And he goes, you know, your mom wants me to talk to you about this, so I'm just telling you right now. Just tell her I told you. You know, you really shouldn't be drinking, you know, it's just not the right thing to do. And uh, hey, you want to hit? No, <laughs> well, you know, no, thanks. Um, but, you know, and it's kind of like, well, you know, give me a break. I mean, what, what are you learning? You're learning as a double standard. You're learning out of one side of your mouth that you know what's good, but out of the other side of your mouth that you don't follow your own counsel? That's pretty scary. And so here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 15, really the turning point of Saul's life and his leadership position. And what's fascinating is is that this man had a choice opportunity to lead the nation of Israel. He was tall, he was strong, he was capable. He was everything a leader was supposed to be. He had everything that every seminar that you go to or every cassette you listen to will tell you you need to be successful. This man had it all. He had the looks, he had the charm, he he was articulate, he was strong, he was handsome, he was capable, he was popular. And the only one thing he had going against him, he was full of himself. And that doesn't go over very big because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. And it didn't matter who he was because the word opposed means this. God is set in stone or set in concrete against those who are prideful. But he gives grace to the humble. It's non-negotiable. I don't care who you are or what position of influence you have or how much money you have or what kind of business you run or what leadership position you are in God's church. God says this. I am opposed to To the proud, I always have been, I always will be. It's non-negotiable. And I'll demonstrate it by using this example from the life of a king of mine who had everything going for him except for he didn't understand this principle. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we we read this. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Okay, you ready for this? God is the authority who's speaking through his prophet at this time and Samuel goes to him and says now listen to what God's saying to you and follow his instructions carefully it says thus says the Lord of hosts I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the, on the way while he was coming up out of Egypt now I want you to go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him but put to death both man and woman child and infant ox and sheep camel and donkey you know what I like God's style when it comes to dealing with sin. You know, when you read through the Old Testament, let me just tell you something. God didn't mess around. He said utterly destroy it, make no room for it because it's like, this, it's like leprosy, it's like cancer. If you give it an inch in your body, it's not satisfied or content to stay there. It'll try to destroy you. That's what sin is like in your life. Some of us today are here sitting here and we've got this little compartment that's set aside, this little altar for our sin that we think God will accommodate and that's his pride and it's arrogance before God. And don't be deceived, God's not mocked by that foolishness. What a man sows, he's going to reap. You cannot set aside a part of your life to sin before God without God being in opposition to your prideful arrogance. He said, go out and utterly destroy it. So if we go down to verse 7, we read this. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to shore, which is east of Egypt. And he, and he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Okay, what did he do here? And how does that line up with his respect for authority? You see, respect for uh, disrespect for authority is a nice way to say that you are rebelling against the commands of God. What did God want him to do? He wanted him to obey his words. They were not that vague. I don't know about you, I'm reading this saying, okay, that was pretty clear in verse 3. What don't you understand about that command? Do not spare him, the king, utterly destroy all that he has. Destroy man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Wipe them out, don't leave any of them left. Can you all understand that? Now, how much more so should Saul have understood it, who took his direct commands from God himself? Now, you'd think he'd understand it, but he didn't, because, you see, in verse 7, he missed something. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Now, you need to understand some history here. The reason that kings captured the other king was so that they could march that defeated king through the streets of their city and say, "Look, I kicked his butt." Right? Look, look at me, how great I am as your leader, and look at this fool with that we're dragging through the street. You are afraid of the Malachites. Now look what we just did. Look at here he comes Agag. Ah ha ah, ah. ha. You know, here he comes, dragging him through the street. Now, the problem with that was God didn't want Saul to do that because God knew Saul's heart and that Saul was a proud, boastful man and he was filled with arrogance. And so if he would have just destroyed him, then God would have got all the credit. Saul wouldn't have got the credit as he dragged the king through the street and God would have began teaching Saul a very important lesson about what it means to lead as God wanted him to lead. But Saul didn't do that. One of the first characteristics of a rebellious person or one who lacks respect for authority is there's defiance against authority to accomplish one's own desire. I'm not listening to you because I got my own plan, man. I'm not going to do it your way because I got my own agenda. And that's what we see happening here. And so as we look at this and we go through it, you know, God's plan for success is this. Meditate on the Word of God and be careful to do it is what he told Joshua as a leader. In Psalm 1, it says, you know what? We're to meditate on the Word of God, and then we'll find success in whatever we do. We're to meditate and then do it. Saul was told, think about what God just said, and now go out and do it. How hard is that? Folks, listen to me. If you want success in the eyes of God, you meditate on what God says, and then you do it. You do it. That's what cuts out all the talk. Obedience is how we translate, I respect authority. If your children respect your authority and you tell them to do something and they don't do it, they're in rebellion against you and they don't respect your authority. And they'll never have success in your family. They won't have success in life because it carries out further than that. And God's opposed to that. That's why it's so important that we root out that root of rebellion and we deal with it in our lives. Not only in our children's lives, but our own lives. It's important that we recognize it, that authority is what God's looking for. Be submissive. Now, as we go through the story, look what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, Man, you know what? I regret that I've made Saul king. He's turned his back from following me. He's not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. All right, well, I think we're getting a little insight into this guy's heart. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. A monument was a place where he took and set up all the stuff that he took that God said don't take, all the things he was supposed to destroy, and and he didn't do it. And he set this little monument up for himself, and it was his little stash for later where he can go back and revel in his victory. It was kind of like his safety deposit box where he'd go and take all the money and stuff and stash it away for later in case he ever needed it. And so he set this monument upstairs and Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I've carried out the command of the Lord. Wow, check this out. Here's a second, a second way that you can tell a person who has a rebellious heart. And that is that they rationalize and they cover up uh, their actions. They rationalize and cover it up. Look what he said. He said, I did what God commanded me to do. Oh, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing what God said to do they rationalize it and they cover it all up and I like the Webster's definition of, of rationalization it says to provide plausible but untrue reasons for conduct to attribute one's actions to rational motives without analysis of true motives isn't that fascinating? hey I did what I was told to do you did? how did you rationalize that? well here let me explain it to you um, here's what I did Okay, um, let me see uh, I, kind of, I I destroyed everybody. I kind of did that. Now, here's what I like, though. As we go through this, this is so great. Listen to what some, look look at the Samuel says. Now, let me see. If you did what you were told to do, then what then is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Now, the last time is Samuel like a king. Now the last time I saw dead sheep, I don't I don't remember them bleating, bleating maybe, till they die, but not bleating. The last time I saw a dead cow, I don't remember it mooing, or moving. Now if you did what you're told to do, what is it that I'm hearing in the background? Uh, well, um, let me let me explain. Let's see what he had to say. Now compare it to what you usually say. See, then Samuel said to Saul, Now wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true? Oh, look at, no, let me go back to f- verse 15. Saul said, uh, They have um, brought them from Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. Whose fault was it? Well, it wasn't my fault. It's the people. Now, doesn't that sound like a typical politician leader? See, and this is what usually happens. Let me just tell you something about leaders. A leader with no conviction is not a good leader at all, and the reason for it is this. Leaders in our culture will give the people what they want, and what people want is to have the most and do the least. We all want the benefits with none of the responsibilities, so everybody who runs for office promises to deliver that to us. We're going to give you anything you want. Hey, you want a balanced budget? Oh, we'll balance the budget. You want to cut taxes? We'll cut those taxes. You want to increase services? We'll increase services. Now, I'm not a genius, but it's a math problem. Let me see if I get this straight. You're going to cut revenue. You're going to increase services. Here's the way it's worse. Duh. You're going to cut revenue. You're going to increase services. And that is balanced. What? That's not leadership. A leader has to say, listen, you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but it's in your best interest and all of our best interests in the long run. That's why it's dangerous to have secular leaders trying to lead God's people because you can't tell me if I'm in a leadership position what you think is good for you and I can't tell me what I think is good for me. Thank God, God tells us both what's good for us and He says, now implement it. Here's the book, read it, study it, and do it. Isn't that great? And the tiebreaker becomes, what does God have to say? And all of us, if we respect authority and we want success in God's eyes, we'll do what God says to do and we will eliminate the problem of somebody misleading us. We have got to be people who discern truth from the Word of God and not be carried away by some charismatic leader. And at the time, even King Saul, the people said, hey, King, we heard God say we're to destroy everything. We must obey God and not man. And if Saul had that kind of accountability, he would have been a great king for a long, long time, forever and ever, amen, because God would have honored him because he submitted himself to the authority of God. And if he would have had people around him who had him accountable to the word of God, then Saul probably would have not had the kingdom removed from him. So the first time a leader gets in trouble, he blames the people because he gave the people what they said they wanted. And he's a leader and he's the one that has to call the shots. Let me just tell you something. As a husband and as a father, here's here's the way this works. If I am accountable before God to answer for my wife and for my children and for our family, the way that it works is this. When my family wants to do something that's in opposition to God, and I believe that God is saying that we to do the opposite, I am responsible before God to take a stand and lead. They may not like it, and I'm not going to be a dictator about it. I will go about explaining to them why I believe that God doesn't want us to do something, why I believe that God is leading us in a different direction. They may not like it. They may not even want to hear it. But I don't care because I'm responsible. And God's not going to listen to me when I say, Oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I did it because they put pressure on me. He doesn't want to hear that. Because I'm accountable to lead. And if I'm a leader in a business, it's the same thing. I've got to do what's right before God, and it doesn't matter what employees want or customers want or anybody wants. Got a customer that came to one of our one of our other customers and said, "Hey, look, you know what? I want you to pad all of your change orders so that when we go to the owner, we can negotiate it, and then when we negotiate it, we'll go ahead and lower the price, so it looks like we're really helping them out. So just jack up all your prices. That's not ethical, and that's not moral. And not only that, but you know what? Interestingly enough, what happens usually is this. Okay, if I'm going to play that game with you, that game's going to come back and haunt me because I'll give you those inflated prices, then you'll go to whoever you want, and if you don't want me doing business for your company, you'll be able to use that and say, look, this guy's trying to take advantage of us. And so you want to get in the bed to play, play with, with the devil, I'll tell you what, you're going to get burned in the process. You just do what's right before God and don't worry about it. And if they, those people don't want you to do business anymore with them, thank God and run and go somewhere else and do business with people that are ethical and honest and have a moral foundation. We cannot compromise what's right for the sake of what we think is going to benefit us in the long run. We look at this and say, Hey, look, at, look what happened to King Saul. Look what happened to him. Now, listen what he says. He goes on in verse 20. Look what it says. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which the Lord gave. I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the choices of the things, devoted to uh, destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord our God. And Samuel said this. Was basically what he's was saying was this. You know what? Just shut up. This is going on long enough. Just Stop. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams, for the rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Wow. Let me throw this out as a thought. You see what God's saying? He's saying, I don't want your sacrifices. I want obedience. Tie this into what I was talking about at the beginning. We live in a world that says this, but God, you're going to be happy with me because I'm going to make a sacrifice today. I'm going to church instead of going golfing. So would you jot that down? Yeah, know how much I like the golf. God, I'm going to make a sacrifice to you. I'm going to stop drinking for a week, two, or a month, just to kind of schmooze you a little bit. Would you write that down? I'm going to stop having sex outside of marriage. I'm going to start reading my Bible. Oh, I'm going to help out in some charitable organization. I'm going to make a sacrifice on my part so that you will accept me and be more pleased with me. And to you, and to me, and to King Saul, he says this, I don't want your crummy sacrifices. I want your obedience. I provided the sacrifice for you. And that's Jesus Christ. He died for you. I don't want any of your crummy sacrifices because all they do is they take away from the sacrifice that I provided for you. You cheapen it, you lessen it, you make it worthless if you think your sacrifice is better than that. I don't want your crummy sacrifices. I want your obedience. Wow. Look at Saul's response. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have sinned. I've sinned before God. I've made a huge mistake in judgment. I've sinned. You may be here today and you may think that somehow or another being here is what's going to make you pleasing before God. You may even be listening to this tape and thinking you're making a great sacrifice to listen to the tape because somebody gave it to you and you think that that's, you know, getting you some points with God. God doesn't want that sacrifice. He's already provided the sacrifice. And the second attitude, and we see in 1 Peter, ties it all together and that's this. He says if we're going to be successful before God, we need an attitude of humility. We need an attitude of humility. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. An attitude of humility. Humble yourselves, therefore. In verse 5, we read these words, to clothe yourselves with humility. I'm sure as Peter wrote those words, he recalled the night when Jesus went and began to wash the feet of his disciples. And he took a robe and he clothed himself with a servant's garment and he knelt down and he began to, to wash their feet. And he remembered that incident because none of them got up to do the same thing, but Jesus led by example. And he taught him an interesting lesson that that Peter never forgot. And that is that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We're to humble ourselves, which means this, God, I have sinned before you. I confess with you and agree with you that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have set a standard, I haven't kept it. You say, thou shalt not lie, and I lie. Thou shalt not steal, and I cheat on my taxes. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy, and I don't keep it holy. Thou shalt honor my mother and father, and I didn't honor my mother and father. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods or thy neighbor's wife, and I covet all the time when I see somebody that has more than me. You set a standard, and I'm falling short of it. And I confess and I agree with you that, you know what? I'm messed up. I need to humble myself before you. I need to get down on my knees and ask for forgiveness. I've tried to offer sacrifices and you offered the ultimate sacrifice. And I accept Him today as a Savior for my sins. takes an attitude of humility, doesn't it? But the world says if you want to be successful, you need to be proud and arrogant and promote yourself. And the Bible says if you want to be successful in the eyes of God, that you better humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that He may exalt you at the proper time. You know what's interesting? King David was a young man who was out and he was taking care of his sheep. And as his brothers paraded before Samuel to pick an anointed one who would take the place of Saul in the kingdom. David wasn't even around. He was out hanging with the sheep. He was singing them songs and doing what he was told to do. He was respecting his father's authority. And all the rest of the brothers came in and they were going to be chosen as the next successor, the next king. He said, well, don't you have any other ones, any other sons? And they paraded him through, the handsome ones, the big ones, the strong ones, the charismatic ones, the ones with all the ability and all the gifts. And he said, well, yeah, I got one, but he's a little guy. He's a little ruddy guy, a little red-headed dude. He's out in, the, out in the woods right now, and he's taking care of sheep. He said, well, bring him in. And they called him in, and God exalted him. Why? Because David humbled himself and was obedient to authority, and God exalted him. You know, it's interesting, and this is just a personal thing, and it's something that I struggled with, and, and, and I learned a, a very valuable lesson through all this, and we'll put it all together. But um, one of the things that, that uh, was interesting is that I have learned this about God. I and you, you and I, do not have to promote ourselves to become successful. God will exalt us when He thinks we're ready to be exalted. I'll give you an example, Lynn and I. We never ever try to do the Rams ministry. Never never made a phone call, never did any backdoor stuff, never did any politicking, never put the word out. People came to us and said, hey, would you come and do this? The same thing happened this year with the angels. Never politicked for it, even though we thought we were qualified for it. We had done it. We had been there. We had seen what needs to be done and not to be done, but never politicked for it, never made any phone calls, never any backdoor negotiations. We got a phone call and said, would you be interested in doing this? What's fascinating is, is that, you know what, these people called from Chicago and we were hidden out here in the pasture in Orange County, California. We were just doing what we were supposed to be doing and honoring God and respecting Him. And God has the ability and the power because He sees all that He can exalt anybody at the right time. And so what's fascinating is we've gone through this whole thing at Calvary Church too just to give you a little personal insight for you know the years we were looking for a pastor or looking for somebody to speak or whatever. And I used to think sometimes, man, you know what's weird is I can be asked to speak anywhere but here. You know, it's just kind of a weird thing that I was going through and I couldn't really understand it and didn't recognize what was going on. But really what God was saying is this, you know what, I know where you are. It doesn't matter if anybody here knows where you are. And it was a process that God took me through to make me realize that, you know what, we need an attitude of humility when we're in service for God. But the people who know me here know that I never did any any type of campaigning. I never talked to anybody. I was never upset about it. I was confused by it. Never really understood it, and I think I'm understanding it more today as I look at how God works, and that is that God wants humble servants. He wants vessels that he can work with, and when it's the right time, he will exalt you or I whenever he wants to do it. And you know what's fascinating about it is this. When God exalts us because we are obedient to him and respect his authority, we know that it's God who did it all. When God calls a person to be a pastor and there's not any backdoor negotiating going on, there's no politicking or strong-arming. and There's no trying to convince people, you know, this is the right thing to do. When God calls somebody into a position, you know what's so awesome about that? When that person is there, then you know that it was God's hand that was in it. When man takes it upon himself to manipulate and try to get what man wants, you know what? God's not even in the picture. Isn't that so fascinating? And so as we look at all this, it becomes a matter of this. You know what? Number one, respect authority. Oh, I like this too. I like, I ran this cartoon and said, Hey, a guy at this office. Despite all my power, prestige, and money, I can still relate to little guys like you. Well, that's not exactly the humility that God's looking for. But I kind of like that. Micah 6.8 summarizes these first two. Respect authority, respond in humility by saying this He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do just, justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Isn't that great? You and I don't have to politic. We don't have to try to get that promotion at work by stabbing somebody else in the back. We don't have to run around covering our bases and trying to negotiate the next deal and manipulating everybody that's concerned. I don't have to run around saying, hey, this is what I'm looking for, what I want, and this is what I'm trying to do, and I, and I use you know, religion as a, as a guise for my hypocrisy. Saul said the same thing. Oh, God, I'm making sacrifices to you. Oh, that religious thing. Oh yeah, but oh Lord, I believe the Lord's moving me in this area. Hey, you know what? No, He's not because the Lord wants a humble servant and He'll exalt you when He's ready to exalt you. He's not moving you to manipulate His program. If you want to be successful, respect authority, respond in humility and the last thing is this, reject all the anxiety. Isn't that great? Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time and cast all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. Let's close with this thought some of us have the success that the world promised us in our jobs in our careers with money with things with stuff and you know what we have with it? all the anxiety of the world we're afraid we're going to lose it when you manipulate things you're afraid at any moment you can lose it because you think somebody else is out there trying to manipulate against you if you've got a promotion because you've manipulated your way there I'll guarantee you that God's opposed to the proud but he gives greater grace to the humble and you've got anxiety that goes along with it But when God does what he does, he takes that anxiety and he removes it. So just as an exercise, if you are anxious about anything, distracted about anything, distracted about how I'm going to be successful in this world, God says this, cast it, just like the fisherman that he was, Peter, would cast his net. He's saying, take all that anxiety and just cast it upon the Lord. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Men and women, if you do not have peace with God, it's because you are trying to offer a sacrifice that has already been offered. And you need in humility to bow before God and ask Jesus Christ into your life. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Father, thanks for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. God, I just pray for those who are here today that aren't sure if they died today that they'd go to heaven. That they would recognize that you sent your son to pay the price for us. That if they would just cast all their cares upon you, that you'll care for them. That they'll set aside these worthless sacrifices and accept Jesus Christ for the provision of their sins. You say, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. God, we thank you for the life that we have in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.